forget whatever they call themselves. And remember, there's a human being there who's coming to this meeting, maybe had an argument with their partner that morning, maybe a bit hungry, a bit cross, probably under stress in their own workplace, and just deal with the human being, not the job title. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Deborah Alcott-Tyler, CEO of DSC, the Directory of Social Change. It's an independent charity served on focusing the needs of the voluntary sector. I've been meaning to talk to Deborah for decades. She's been a writer, a columnist in the Third Sector magazine. So I've been reading her words for a very, very long time. So wonderful to have this conversation at last. Deborah is the ultimate authentic leader, transparent, passionate, committed. She cares. She's really open in this episode. You're going to really enjoy it. Before I jump into the show, could I just ask whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or another, hit that follow button. It'll help you get the content more easily. It'll also help spread the message to get the show out there to others. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Deborah Alcock-Tyler, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Lovely to be here, Mark. You're the CEO of the Directory of Social Change. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Well, DSC fundamentally believes that the world is made a better place when people get together and help and support each other. And that one of the ways of, of achieving that is to make sure that you have strong structures that support people in those endeavours. So in our particular case, charities. So DSC's purpose is to help charities to do what they do really well so that society gets better and we have happier communities, happier citizens and a better environment. And you've been there a really decent amount of time, haven't you? And I'd love to know a little bit about the history of the organisation and how it came about because it was, really was one of the early social enterprises, wasn't it? Yeah, although I'm not sure we'd ever consider ourselves to be a social enterprise in that sense, to be honest. I mean, you know, we can argue later about social enterprises versus charities. But it was actually set up by a chap called Michael Norton. And he what he wanted to do was to essentially show people that activities that in which they engaged could make things better. And so it started off as a book. He wrote a book called The Directory of Social Change. Um, which was basically about showing these stories and these ideas about how people could do things to make the world better. And he couldn't get a publisher for it. So he set up this organization so that he could publish this book, which hence we've ended up with the name Directory of Social Change. It sort of links to the original book, which we still have a copy of. So that's kind of where it started, about giving information to people to help them to know how to do better. And we've stayed very true to that. You know, that's still very much in the core of what we do. Yeah, that's one thing that struck me, actually, because working in the UK, the charity sector in the 90s, you know, you're very useful then and still very useful now because there was limited resources, right? There's a lot of things you could draw on. Yeah, there really was. I mean, when I first came to DSC, what, 22 years ago now, there were pretty much not really anybody else providing the same kind of information in the same sort of way as uh, we do. Now, of course, there's lots and lots of organisations who do very similar work. So, um, yeah, so there's there's much, much more resource available now than there was then, which is great because it means, you know, DSC has got the message out. Not so great in the fact that now there's a lot more competition for how, you know, for the things that we provide. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's much more important that the sector's getting what, it's, what it needs than any one particular organisation, yeah. you know, does spectacularly well. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I would still say that, you know, DSC tends to lead the way and then others catch up. And I would say that, of course. But, you know, I think about, for example, our information on funders, on 
um, trusts and foundations. Like when I first came to DSC, we used to regularly get letters from trusts and foundations saying, how dare you publish our information in your directories, we're going to sue you. And we would go back and say, you know, well, sue away because it's public domain and we can do it. And also, why on earth would you not want to be transparent? And actually, 22 years later, we get exactly the opposite. You know, people write to us and say, why haven't you included us in your directories? Right. You know, the world has changed actually quite a lot in the sector, certainly in terms of, you know, trusts and foundations being more transparent and open about who they fund and how they fund them than they were 22 years ago. Yeah. And you would have been at the coalface of that. And so... Yeah. Self-sustaining, your income comes from the resources that you produce and pass on. Is that how it still works? Yes, almost entirely. So it's usually over about 90%, depending on which particular year it is, we resource ourselves. Again, it came back to the early days of Michael Norton and, of course, Luke Fitzherbert, his great colleague, who was, you know, a real hero in the sector until until he unfortunately died. It was all about making sure that people understood what they needed to do and how they needed to do it. So in terms of our sort of desire to be as self-sustaining as we possibly can be, we do get the odd grant here and there for particular pieces of work. But it was all to do with Luke and Michael believing very much that, you know, we shouldn't be taking grant money away, like big swathes of grants to provide information for other people. It's that charities ought to be able to, you know, get a few quid together to buy a book or to attend a course. And also because it's like sort of spread the risk for the organisation. So it meant that we weren't reliant on convincing a funder that it was good for someone to have governance training. Our job was to convince the sector that it needed to have, for example, governance training or leadership or fundraising or you know, whatever the topic happened to be. So it's a very important principle for us. The other really important part of it is that DSC's vision is an independent voluntary sector at the heart of social change. And the key word for us there is independence. And one of the things we recognise is that when, if you can generate as much of your revenue as we are able to, it means that you're not afraid of what you say. You're not worrying about offending a funder or annoying somebody or losing support in some way, shape or form. So it means that Unlike some of my colleagues in the sector, where they are much more dependent upon, you know, grants and things like that from both government and trusts and foundations, because we're not, we're able to be super critical, to say exactly what we want without worrying. It's the same reason why we're not a membership body, yeah. you know, totally approve of membership bodies, think they're incredibly important. But the, the challenge of a membership body is you have to try and represent members' views. So you're not able to be completely independent in your own space, if you see what I mean. And also members often don't agree with each other. So DSC is a very unique and important thing for us. And actually, we think that should be true for all charities anyway, is that, you know, that one of the real values in charitable endeavour is the fact that they ought to be and they can be independent and say what they think about what needs to change. Yeah, and and more of that's needed, absolutely. But a lot of the complications fall into place around funding and who's the paymaster and where the funds are coming from. So you stayed in the organisation for a long time. You've touched on some of the changes that you've seen, and it sounds like it's gone in the right direction in terms of more collaborative approach and people being more open and transparent. What other trends have you noticed in the 20-odd years you've been leading the organisation? Because that's that's not normal, Deborah. Like People don't stay in jobs for 20 years. That's unusual, but it, you must have kept evolving and learning as a, as a person as well. Well, it's not normal now. I mean, and, and also it depends on the profession you look at. So, you know, doctors stay in their professions for 40, 50 years, as do, you know, nurses and, you know, things like that. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it also interests me when people think that you've stayed somewhere too long. You know, it's like, not that I'm saying you're saying that, of course. but that, you know, <laughs> that is sort of, So I, I've stayed at DSC because the things have changed constantly. You know, the environment has changed constantly. The people obviously have changed because people come and go, although we do have... 
actually, uh, I say that, but we have a very, well over 50% of our staff have been with us for a very long time. You know, we don't have a particularly high turnover at all of staff. So DSC is the kind of organization that sort of captures your heart. And also, if I'm really honest, it's like, you know, I had a crack at sort of frontline support in charities, and I'm just not cut out for it. I don't have the emotional or mental resilience to deal with people in crisis. I just, you know, I get far too involved. I'm not able, do you know what I mean? So for me, I'm better able to serve citizens and causes and the environment that needs us by helping other organizations to do that better, if you know what I mean. And so that fills me with a huge amount of joy and inspiration. The fact that, you know, you really feel you're not just helping one particular cause, you're helping all of the causes to do what they need to do. So that's kept me going. The fact that it's changed a lot has kept me going. There's always, always been something new to do. And of course, it's always a challenge when you run a charity, any charity, whether it's DSC or an SPCC or, you know, Bulldog Rescue and Rehoming. These are all, you know, organizations where you can never just sit back and go job done, you know. So there's all, yeah. always challenges, yeah. And in terms of staying relevant, and you said, you know, you now have competition, other people providing education, resources, stuff that DSC was the only organization that, provide them for me like especially around the 90s you know yeah major i was thinking a book on major grant fundraising no one else was writing that you know there was one i think it was one a platform emerged uk fundraising that was a, a really useful resource but how have you kept organization relevant how have you kept evolving like what's been the secret of that do you think gosh that's a really good question i think there's two things really i think we've always always stayed connection connected to the why of what we do rather than the what we do so, so it's ne- we've never just said we're a training and publishing organization. Or oh, we did for a bit, actually. We lost sight of it. And we thought that's what we did. But then when we reconnected to actually, what are we actually trying to achieve here? What that's meant is that we've been constantly able to develop new ways of meeting what charities need to do their work. So, for example, I mean, funding is a really good example. It used to be books. And that's what we did. You know, we do the research and publish the books and people buy the books. And then what we then did was we invested in, like we kind of had a CD-ROM version of the, of the book so that people could search it. And then we then developed our online fundraising services. So we have this thing called Funds Online, which is several iterations, actually. It's like it itself has evolved over time, but where you can literally go and search. You can go into the into the app and you can say, you know, uh, how many what organisations will fund children with autism under the age of five in Norfolk? And it will get, will literally search and give you all the information. And more than that, it, it, it doesn't just tell you who, because that's sort of stuff you can find generally. Mm. It also, you know, my research team actually researched those organizations to see is there a difference between what they say they're funded and what they've actually funded, you know, who they funded recently. So it helps fundraising to gain more information. And all of that has evolved over the last 22 years. So it's become, yeah, so, you know, that's one of the ways in which we change things. Things like, for example, online training. I mean, I was quite resistant to the idea of people doing virtual training because I, I hadn't experienced it as, as working. And, you know, we'd invested in this platform and people just weren't using it. You know, they were still coming on physical courses. Yeah. But the pandemic came, we had absolutely no choice. And now, of course, the world has transformed again. And pretty much all of our training now is delivered virtually, you know, online. And it's hugely popular. And you can see why, of course, because it's a lot cheaper. It's not cheaper for us to do because you've still got all the, you know, you've still got to, you know, design the course and get the training and all the rest of it. But it means that charities don't, for example, have to spend money on travel, overnight stays. It's much more convenient for people to be able to log in, you know, and attend one of our training courses or our conferences online than it was before. So constant, constant, constant changing. And, and we, yeah. again, during the pandemic, we were amongst the first to come out and like do a whole series of 
online training and things like that. And of course, the other thing it's meant we've been able to do is a lot of free stuff. So we do a lot of free one-hour sessions for the sector, which would have been unthinkable before. You could like we couldn't have afforded to do it for free because we've had to pay for the venue or the travel of someone to get there. Whereas now, you know, one of us will just appear on screen. So yeah, I think that's changed a lot. Although what people want hasn't particularly changed. You know, I would say that the ways in which we deliver things have changed, but what people need hasn't changed very much, certainly in the last 22 years since I've been at DSC. In those shifts and, and you know, decades, uh, where were you looking as an organisation in that research and development that you try to stay ahead of the curve and try to deliver innovation and really different ways of thinking? Yeah. Because uh, I guess there's there's a, the danger that you do, you lead the you know UK charity sector in the wrong direction. It's quite a responsibility. But where were you guys looking? What did that look like? Well, it was always about helping people to do things better. So, like you know, there are fundamentals that you need. So, apart from very small charities, which of course is the bulk of the UK charitable sector, about 110,000, I think, under 10,000 pounds a year, they're not folk who need who need to raise funds particularly. But a large, you know, sort of medium. To larger charities definitely do and it was like you know if you fundamentally need to raise money how can you go about raising that money in the best possible way in a way that works for your charity that works for the donor where you're you know you're teaching people how to say thank you properly how to acknowledge it whilst at the same time not being too led by you know what the donor wants you know and being called to what your purpose is so I think it's about that really. Mm. And toughest day in the office for you through that period through the 20 years you've been at DSC? Truthfully, honestly, the toughest day I ever had was the day when my chair, completely out of the blue at the time, came to me and said that the board had lost confidence in me and felt I wasn't performing anymore. And that was a very, very frightening period of time. I was going through some big personal issues at the same time as well. I was going through a divorce. I'd had um, I'd had a letter from the police saying a woman had accused me of running over a baby in the car park. <laughs> I hadn't, by the way. It was all completely made up. But nonetheless, it was a really, really tough time. And I think there was that one day when I just thought, I just don't know why I'm doing this. You know, it, that was pretty gruesome. But anyway, I came through it. Had there been a build-up to that? Like, you, did you know, you were you, obviously there'd been a build-up to that, but in your mind, had you taken your issues to work or were you disconnected from the work and what was going on for you at home? In fact, most of my trustees didn't know what was going on mm. for me at home, to be honest. I think it, what had happened was, is we'd engage, which I can't talk too much about because it's a very sensitive subject, but... We, we'd in, engaged in working with another organisation and it had failed spectacularly and it cost us quite a lot of money. And, you know, there were all sorts of reasons for that. It was a high-risk thing. It was a, it was a decision the trustees made. You know, they wanted to do this particular piece of work and it failed. Mm. And I think what happened is, and I think it's very classic of, of boards generally, and which is one of the reasons why I wrote my book, it's a battle on the board, is that they didn't know how to have the conversation with each other about what had happened and sort of their part in it. And it, it was easier for them at the time to sort of look down to the chief executive and say, well, it must be your fault, mm. you know, that this thing failed. When when that's not, you know, it's a much more complex situation than that. So I think it was a lot to do with, you know, they kind of lost confidence in themselves, but weren't they weren't yeah. at that level of trusteeship where they were able to have those open conversations, which is, and that's a problem in many boards. You know, it's very, very difficult people who, who, for people who meet basically four times a year as one whole group to form the kinds of relationships where you can have truthful and honest interactions with each other. But in fact, what happened was it won, It was one of the trustees, you know, they were having all these sort of private board meetings without me. And it was one of the other trustees who says to them, what we're doing, you know, we're the problem here, not Deborah, and we need to address, mm. you know, what's happening to us. So they did end up, you know, like being able to work more effectively. 
But yeah, it was a very. And did you doubt yourself at all in that period? Hugely. Like I do every day, Mark, to be honest. You know, it's like, mm. although it's interesting because I get a lot of people talking to me about imposter syndrome. And the thing for me about imposter syndrome is an interesting thing because, you know, the only people who walk into a room thinking they're the cleverest, best, most competent people in the room are probably people like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or something. The vast majority of the rest of the population inevitably feels nerves and out of their depth and not entirely sure and that other people are cleverer than them. And I think that's healthy. Mm. You know, if you walk into a space thinking, I'm, you know, you're the bee's knees and you're the be-all and end-all, you're probably not, you know. So, mm. so yes, I, I'm never fully confident. And also because you can't see into the future. All I can see is what I've done with DSC, but it doesn't mean that what I've done in the past is necessarily going to work for the future. So you've got to be constantly testing yourself and testing your thinking and your ideas about stuff. I mean, I used to have quite, I think, an old-fashioned view to the workplace. You know, you rock up at nine, you leave at five. And I've had that view completely transformed over the last few years about actually what to get the best out of people. Yeah. You know, so I'm not, I, I'm not definitely not the same leader now as I was five years ago, 10 years ago, Yeah. you know, 22 years ago. It was disastrous, I think, but... Yes, of course, you're constantly learning. And and I know that sounds a bit of a cliche because everybody says, oh, life is always learning. But I think it genuinely is. Yeah. You know, I don't know what's going to happen for the rest of today, never mind next year. It kind of gives you the ability to serve the sector more going through some of that organisational trauma, right? Because, you know, if a tension point exists in the charity sector, it's between voluntary boards and paid staff or... You know, like, or if there's just a board and it's straight to delivery, but there's often, and I know you've written, as you said, you've written a book on it, but that that sort of tension and for you to go through that, see through it, survive, and keep leading the organisation. And I sometimes I think it, as you you know experience more negative things or tough times or you know ups and downs, it kind of relaxes you when you go through that stuff because you know actually if you'll learn some stuff through this. Yeah. And I imagine I, I imagine for you, you know, like. COVID would have been quite a big challenge as well, sort of maybe the second biggest challenge, suddenly organisation all online. And you, you, I sense from you, you quite like being around people and, and having that personal contact. But you've got a whole sector looking at you going, Deborah, we need some guidance, please, because our in-person fundraising stopped and uh, we may not operate in six months. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was, we had to be really swift and sort of, you know, adapt incredibly quickly, which I'm really proud my team did, you know, it's about, okay, what can we do differently now? What can we do to help, you know, and, and actually the interesting thing was the most important thing we did during the pandemic, I think, was provided a space for people to come together and say, ah, you know, I'm really scared about what's going on. I don't know how I'm going to survive and, and just have people know that you're not alone, which I think has been one of the most important things. But I think also referencing back to, you know, my situation with my board at that particular time, which is a long time ago now. I mean, it's, I've got a completely different board now, obviously. But what was interesting for me about that is what I did learn is one of the things that I'd stopped doing is as I'd stopped engaging with my trustees on an individual level. So everything was going through the chair. And I always think that's a hugely dangerous thing to do. I definitely know it now because I think that, you know, lots of chief executives don't realize that the whole of the board is their boss. It's not just the chair, you know, unless it's specified in your governing documents, which I'm, I'm pretty sure most it isn't. The chair is simply the mouthpiece for the board to make it more convenient. But if you restrict then your access to the rest of your trustees, what happens is they only know about you through whatever emails you send when they see you at a board meeting and what the chair says. And also, you know nothing about them. You only experience them through an email or if they do or don't contribute at a board meeting or what the chair says. And so, you know, I've learned like that big slap around the head about Deborah, it's incredibly important to make sure you have strong relationships with every single member of the board, even the ones you don't get on with as well. Yeah. You know, because they, they all need to feel that they've got access to their chief executive. So 
I think it's referring back to the thing you said earlier is that when you face the challenging things, they're often the most useful because you see, ah, okay, I see what I, I didn't do. And like next time I'm going to make sure I do this. So, yeah. Because not everyone agrees with you, actually, and, but it sounds sensible, like humanise the whole process, right? So bring the people, their personalities, their faults, the things that are brilliant out their superpowers, bring it all on top of the, to the table, and you'll understand each other more. You, you'll understand why someone making a decision or why they're taking that approach ma- makes sense. Yeah, and you get a better perspective. And, you know, fundamentally, in any workplace, it's all about human beings, you know, and human relationships. And it's, you know... It's daft to think that you can just look at somebody with a job title and say, well, they're the trustee or they're the chief executive or they're the chair and think that therefore they're going to behave in a certain way because that's the job title they've got. You know, that people don't behave like a job title. People behave like human beings with uh, with roles to carry out and responsibilities to deliver on. And they do it differently. Uh, and of course, the sector itself, that's what it basically does for a job. You know, it's working, whatever, whether you're working with older folk or you know, young people fighting addiction or bereaved children or whatever, or even if you're working with animals, you're having to work with volunteers who've got to support those animals. So Mm. only ever about human relationships. And, you know, I always say to people, always look at the human, forget the job title, forget whatever they call themselves. And remember, there's a human being there who's coming to this meeting, may have had an argument with their partner that morning, maybe a bit hungry, a bit cross, probably under stress in their own workplace and just deal with the human being, not the job title. And on a human level, so you have a have had a column for almost the whole entire time in third sector, which is a very high profile. I, I remember reading you your wonderful words in the nineties uh, as far back as. So in terms of you formulating those ideas, putting them out there, and then getting a reaction, I imagine that's quite a big thing. I, I'm sure you're probably used to it, but everything you say, not everyone will agree with. You'll get stick from time to time. Like, tell us a bit about Deborah talking you know, to many and what that's like emotionally, like why don't you put it out there? (laughs) Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. I mean, you know, firstly, I'm not, it's not, I'm not really Deborah talking to many, although obviously I'm the face that people see because lots of the things that I believe and the things we talk about are things that have been developed over time at DSC. So, you know, most of what I'm saying is fundamental to what we believe as an organisation. There's very little difference between what I would say and my trustees would say and my staff would say in terms of, you know, what we believe about the world and what we think the sector can and can't do about it. And yes, I do get discriminated. On the whole, though, I have to say the voluntary sector is is normally, it's a pretty nice space in which to operate. You know, people are very rarely attacking. They might disagree with you or they might say, I see this different, I don't think that's right. So it doesn't actually happen that often. When it does happen, it, I mean, it hurts. Yeah. And I get very upset by it. You know, it's so, yeah, of course, I'm not emotionally disconnected from the feedback that I get. It's uh, I've started joking now, actually, Mark. Well, am I joking? I'm not even sure that I am. But like, you know, if I go and go, because I give a lot of speeches, as you know, both physically, you know, in person and also online. And when the organizers say, oh, we'll send you feedback, I'm always like, only if it's good. I have absolutely no <laughs> what I said. But actually, all joking aside, there's a part of that. Because if you think about feedback, it's feedback is often about the individual giving it more than it is about the person receiving it. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm getting a bit now, and I'm sort of like, unless you're telling me something I don't already know. Like, if you're going to tell me you talk too fast, and yeah, well, I know that, and I've talked too fast for 58 years, and there's probably not much I can do about that at this stage, you know. So it's like, yeah, I do find that very, yes, it's very interesting and I'm slightly going off piece here, aren't I? But about how we sort of think like if we criticize human beings, they're going to get better. And that has never, ever, ever been my experience. And in fact, we don't actually do that in frontline 
charities, you know, we don't criticize someone for being an addict. We explore how they got there and we show them ways in which they can move on and, you know, and not be mm. driven by that addiction in the same way. And yet somehow or other in kind of the workplace and volunteering, it's like, well, it's okay to say to somebody, well, I don't think you're very good at that. My experience has always been that people rise up to the praise and more often debilitated by the criticism. I've got to be honest, when I've been given criticism in the past, it has never, ever made me feel better or like, you know, or even necessarily learned from it. it's always just completely destroyed me. So I think there's a, you know, of course you can give people advice about, you know, you know how you could make that even better. Yeah. And authenticity. Yeah. So, cause one thing like, you know, I've seen you speak over the years and I've, as I said, I've, I've read your words, but you've always been very authentic. You're you know, out there person. I'll call yourself, call you out there. Do you think that's the world's caught up with you actually? And actually the world appreciates that. And everyone, you know, we've talked about COVID, but the authentic leadership, people can bring a bit of home to the, to the, to work and they can bring a bit of home to management and leadership. Like it's just, it's kind of all changed, isn't it? Like it's, it feels like it has, you could be, you could be yourself and be a boss. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's some subtleties to it, which, which I'll cover in a moment, but I think people do what they see works. And I think that for, you know, such a long time, leadership and management was, was a very particular paradigm, a very male paradigm, actually, a very sort of part, patriarchal paradigm, that this is the way in which you do things and how you measure success is about growth and things like that. And I think that that's changed over time because we've seen other people behave in a very different lead, leaderly way or, you know, in a way that's slightly different to that. And we've seen that also works. And so I think people do, sensible people do what works. But I also think the authenticity thing is quite an interesting one, because I, I remember talking to a chief executive a, a number of years ago who was, they just started in this new role, and they'd asked me for some advice and some support, which I'm always happy to give. And uh, I remember her saying to me, you know, like, I need to be more authentic self in work. You know, I need to, like, talk about myself and, you know, be who I am. And, and of course, the, the problem with that is, is that when you say, I have to be who I am in the workplace, what you're doing is you're completely disavowing and disempowering people around you because it's all about you. So I always talk about lead authenticity and leadership is a bit like being authentic as a parent. So you have a role as a parent and your job is to be authentic to that role as a parent. So for example, you wouldn't say to your five-year-old son, I absolutely bloody hate your mother and I can't wait until you get to 18 and I'm going to leave and run off. You just wouldn't say that because that would be, that might be authentic to you, but it wouldn't be authentic to your role as a, a parent. And I think that's true in leadership too. Mm. I think it's not about coming and saying, here I am, accept me as I am and all just sod off. I think it's much more about saying, I have a job as a leader and what is my role as a leader and how therefore can I be authentic to that role? So in leadership, our job is to make sure our staff are, are connected to our vision, to be really clear that everything we do is about achieving that vision and to help to bring out the best of people to achieve that vision. And that's what you need to be authentic to. Not authentic to the fact I might have just had a massive row on my partner. I'm going to come in and saying I hate all men. So I think there are some distinctions around authenticity. And I think that it's about being clear. Are you being authentic to your role? Or is this just about you saying, this is me, take me or leave me, which I don't think is appropriate in a leadership role. Yeah. And so much has changed and you touched on it before and about presenteeism and being in the office and nine to five. And, and before this podcast, we talked about how the, so the gloves are off or the whole thing shifted and, and, you know, you could be a leader and, and live, work flexibly and work around your life. But we talked a little bit about that being a game changer, especially for women. And we're going to talk about that. Tell us your thoughts on the changes in work for women from your perspective. Yeah, well, not just women, although it's, it's you know, mostly benefiting women where organisations are bright enough to understand it. But 
it's about we're whole human beings. You know, well, I was brought up, you know, my began my career in the early 80s. And the message was always very much about leave yourself at the door. You're at work now. So you leave your personal life behind. But of course, that's completely unrealistic because that isn't how real life works. And what happens is you find that when you make, when life is difficult for people, because, for example, they've got caring responsibilities and they've got handover to the carer who comes at 8.30 and then you've got to try and get into work on time and you've got to get back to, or you've got to get back to pick up a child. All those things, they're added pressures that get in the way of people being able to function well at work. And so one of the things I've learned is that if you enable people to have, as far as you can, a relatively easy personal life, home life, outside of work life, they're better in the workplace. So, for example, at DSC, we've been able to do this much more now, of course, because we're entirely remote working. But what we, we will say to our staff, look, you know what the hours are. You know that, and our hours are, we're not saying like nine to five, like you've got 35 hours that you've got to do your work and we trust you to do it. So it's up to you. If you have to disappear at four o'clock because you, you know, got an emergency at the school, just tell your manager I'm off, I'll be back in an hour. And then you just catch up the work when it suits you. So this whole sort of notion is work is Monday to Friday, nine to five, and then you're, you're like, the rest of your life is those other hours. It's just, it's just not realistic, really. And so I used to think, for example, you shouldn't be working at the weekend, having working myself at the weekend. But of course, I used to work at the weekend because it was an easy time for me to work. It suited me enormously, like to have a bit of peaceful time and that sort of thing. And so I think I've, we've certainly I have and we have at DSC become much more flexible and understanding. And the result of that, Mark, is we have the highest levels of, of satisfaction in the organization that we've had in the entire time I've been here. Like something like 97% of my staff are either happy or really happy with their work, with their line management. And there are ups and downs, of course, we're perfect and we get it wrong. And, you know, sometimes people get cross about stuff. But yeah, it's been transformative, our understanding that, and also particularly, of course, and again, it's, it's easier in the virtual world than in the physical world, although even in the physical world, we have babies come to our meetings. It's not uncommon for us to be in a virtual meeting with a couple of kids and the old cat sort of getting it. And that's fine because it just makes it easier for them. Yeah. Otherwise, they couldn't come to the meeting at all because I've got a childcare issue. And so, therefore, I'm not going to be mm. in work. So, so, it works for everybody to do it that way. We've even had babies come to our, ver- our physical meetings because if we hadn't said, yes, of course, bring your baby, that person couldn't have come. Yeah. And how, how do you maintain the – because a lot of people talk about the issue is connection and staying connected. How have you dealt with – because you had an office in near Euston, didn't you? And I probably imagine quite an expensive one that you no longer have to fundraise for, which is great, or raise money for, or earn money yeah, for. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. How do you form the connections or make sure – especially that a bit around just thinking like someone's in a leadership role giving – constructive feedback about you know next time do that better yeah and then that person slams down their laptop and the, and they're off and they're like in the other room to their their partner saying that blah 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 yeah <laughs> that person's awful yeah of course that still happens because we're human beings you know we sometimes we piss each other off and and we will go and have a whinge to a colleague or whatever and that's i don't discourage that because i think actually it's quite healthy to have a bit of a moan every once in a while because otherwise you're just not a real person you know no matter how much you like people they annoy you sometimes the real trick at DSC is we're incredibly disciplined about it. And we have some things that are compulsory. So, for example, every single morning at 9.30, every single member of staff is expected to log in to this Zoom link. And we all say good morning to each other in the morning. It lasts about 10 minutes. It's not work-related. It's the equivalent of coming into the office and saying, morning, how are you? How was your evening? Except we now do it virtually. And everybody's expected to be there. 
And it's also, of course, a way of us as employers carrying out our duties as employers, because it's our duty to make sure that our staff are there and present and okay and nothing awful's happened to them. And if you don't have these disciplines, you've got no way of knowing whether somebody is okay or not. Mm. So we have things like that. We have every, so that's the whole organization comes together at 9.30. At the end of each day, teams come together for what we call checkout. And again, it's literally the same. How's your day been? What are you doing tonight? Any plans for this evening? It's just sort of to close. And when I say close down the day, they typically have these meetings between about 4 and 4.30. But of course, people carry on working afterwards. But it's just a way of kind of marking the day to say, have you been okay? So the teams, we see each other at least all together a minimum of once a day. And t- people see each other in their teams at least twice a day. And then, of course, there's we have disciplines about one-to-one. So every manager is expected to have a one-to-one every month in the diary, diaried in advance, and you don't move it, you know, unless you've got a good reason to, and you never cancel. If you have to move it, then you just move it. And then on a Wednesday, we have what we call all staff. So at 11.15, again, every single member of staff logs in, and then what we do is we randomly assign them to little groups, and then they send them off, and then they just chat and gossip, and they're told this isn't work. Your job in this space is to gossip and talk about football or what you've got up to or anything like that. And so we, and there are other things we do as well, team briefings and things like that. But it's, it's not just this casual sort of our people are lovely, they'll just come together because people don't. You have to give them structure. And at the beginning, when we, when we did all this, they were quite resistant to it. Oh, you know, like, don't you trust us while you've got to log in? Now, of course, they completely understand the purpose of it. And it keeps us, I'd say my, my DSC team is the most connected, the most involved. And actually, interestingly, too, because when we had the physical offices, they very rarely saw me because I was always up and down the country. I was in a train somewhere or a car somewhere. I was between offices or whatever. So even when I was in the office, I would be in meetings and the same, yeah. you know, other senior staff. And what they now report is they feel there's much less gap between the leadership of the organization and the rest of the staff of the organization because we see each other all the time, you know. Again. Everyone can log in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are things, you know, physical, some of our younger people in particular, you don't get the same kind of social aspect out of it. Although we try to create those moments, it's not the same as leaving the office and saying, I fancy a drink, anybody want to join me? So that's definitely a missing. So that's how to work. But then all you have to do is you just have to try and compensate for that as best you can. And what is the saving? Like what, like what's the, what the pounds that you're saving? Is it like, is it? Thousands of pounds that you're saving. Oh, thousands. Virtual. I mean, you know, I'm not having yeah. an office anymore. We're saving about £100,000 a year, which is yeah. a, a huge amount of money. You know, that was, it was mm-hmm. very, very costly for us doing that. Yeah, although the savings haven't translated because, as you know, how it works in life, Mark, when you're running an organisation, you make a saving here and suddenly a walloping great bill comes from somewhere else. We've had to spend an enormous amount of money trying to sort out our CRM system. So the savings that we would yeah. have made, you know, instantly went in that thing. But but then on the other hand, we wouldn't be able to do that if we hadn't have been making those savings. So it sort of swings yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Changing tack for a minute and reflecting on your earlier years and how you, they may have led you to a, a sort of a life working in purpose and charity and helping the charity sector. Will you look back? Because are there things in your early years that indicate that you might be focused on on others? And purpose? You know, my family history is one of public service, basically. I mean, I'm, I come from a military family on both sides, you know, my mother's side and my father's side, five generations on my father's side. So that's about public service. And a lot of my family have gone into, they've gone into teaching or working in the health service or things like that. So there's kind of a culture in my family anyway of service to others in which, whichever way shape or form. So that was kind of, it wasn't something I was conscious of probably, but obviously it was part of 
developing my character and my beliefs and my value system. And also being the eldest of four and the eldest granddaughter of 13. When you're the oldest, you do tend to be lumped with looking after the others. You know what I mean? So I'm quite used to like trying to make things better and easier for people. I actually wanted to be an actress, to be honest, Mark. That's all I ever wanted to do from when I was a child. And then I didn't get into the universities I wanted to get into. And so I sort of had a massive stop and said, well, you know, I'm not going to go then. I should just do something else. And the truth is I ended up in the charitable sector entirely by accident. Whether I would have ended up here anyway, who knows? But once I, my, my very first role in charities was working for an organisation called the Industrial Society, which is an organisation that was set up to improve the lives of work for people. Mm-hmm. And I just li- literally, it, everything about it just just appealed to me. This real sense that you're doing it for the greater good, you're campaigning to help things be better for people, that people are going to have a happier experience in the workplace. And it just sort of followed on from there, really. So I can't say, yes, I always wanted you know, to do good in the world because that's not true. I wanted to be an actress. But I think, yeah. as, as it's all, you know, like, the young people say, like, you know, if, without a plan, if it, no, if you don't, I remember somebody once saying to me, if you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. I think, oh, nonsense, really. You know, that, that actually, my advice to young people is be open, yeah. open to experiences and open to opportunities. Don't like say, I've got to have this career plan because, in my experience, life very rarely works out like that anyway, unless you very clearly want to be a doctor or an engineer or an accountant. Most of us mm. accidentally end up in the jobs we're doing. So, and so I think I've managed to progress simply because I've always been open to opportunities and I'm really enthusiastic about pretty much everything, you know, so whatever I do, I'm enthusiastic about it. Are you particularly motivated by injustice? Like you, it's something that you don't like to see and you'll come out passionately against? Oh, yeah. But I think that's true of many people. I don't think there's anything particularly special about me, but no, I, I, I well, it's not even injustice. What infuriates me is people not thinking. It's like jumping on a particular thing without thinking through the the implications of that. Or uh, I was having a discussion with my mother about HMOs, which are houses of multiple houses of multiple occupancy, which is basically where people buy a room in a shared house, you know, rent a room in a shared house, and they're very common, and they're popping up all over the place. And you know, my mother was talking about what problem this is in their particular area where they live. But I was saying that the trouble is you're reacting to this decision by HMOs, but what's the underlying problem behind it? What what's actually causing this? And what's causing this? Is people who are not paid very much doing, you know, like working in nursing or in in hospitality or in retail who aren't earning enough to buy or rent a place for themselves. And the only option they've got is to share a house. And so the problem is not the sharing of houses. The problem is what's leading people into that sharing of housing things. And so things like that annoy me when people haven't properly looked into it. But then I have to say, I learned that later too. I remember... I was humiliated once at a senior management team meeting years ago when I was working in a different organisation. I wasn't chief exec, I was just a manager. And I can remember making this comment about something that I thought I knew something about. It just seemed obvious to me. And I said it. And the person with expertise basically put me right, but put me right in the most patronising possible way they probably could have. You know, I was humiliated in front of the team. And I'll never forgive her for that. But actually what I'm really grateful for is that taught me to know. So now you, yeah. you can't tell me anything, Mark, and I will just take it at face value. I've got to go and find out now. Like, so what did you base mm. that on? And where's the data? And what's the information? How do you know about that? So, and, I, and actually, I think it's people not knowing, which is what leads to injustice when you're not aware. It's the same thing with like racism or homophobia or any of those things. It's like when you've never had to experience it, you don't understand it. You, unless you go and find out about it, how are you possibly going to be able to be in any authoritative place and say, well, it doesn't exist? Yeah. I'll give you. If you can demonstrate to me that you've done the thinking and looked at the data and looked at the studies and all the rest of it, and then you come to me and say, 
then that's a different thing. But if you're just saying it because you're mate on Facebook, it's like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Ignorance. Ignorance. Yeah. Mm. That's it. In fact, that one word, <laughs> the Sunday what took yeah. like 10 minutes to whistle on about, but yeah, ignorance, ignorance irritates me a lot. And in terms of your career, like nonlinear path, which I, I love, and I'm hearing more and more from all sorts of leaders, that's just that windy path. Was there any intentional pieces to it? Like the DSC role, did you fight hard for that? Did you compete with others? Like what was the... Yeah, of course. I went did through... they approach you? No, 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 no. I went through, an ad, you know, there was an advertisement and I applied to and all the rest of it. So no, yeah, of course I did. I mean, the interesting thing about the DSC role was because the charity that I used to work for, the Industrial Society, it used to do most of its work through publications, information, training. So it was a very, very similar model, almost entirely, in fact, pretty much entirely self-financing. So it was a very similar model to the DSC one. It's just the industrial society did it for like all sectors, the public sector, the private sector, as well as charities, whereas DSC specifically focused on charities in particular, obviously wider not-for-profits. And so I think I got the job just because I'd spent 14 years working in an organization that did exactly the same kind of work. So I understood about publishing businesses and training business and things like that. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily because I was a better leader than anybody else. I just happened to have the right sort of experience. And I was 36 when I got the job and completely out of my depth. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I thought I did. I went into it with this complete thing of arrogance. And, and I had a miserable time. The first two years, I hated DSC and they hated me. And the only reason on stage was... How did you know they hated you? Well, I used to get anonymous hate mail, for example. Somebody actually went to the trouble of cutting out letters from magazines and newspapers and sticking them on bits of paper. And they started off sending them to my trustees. And then my trustees didn't react because hate mail, come on. They started sending it to me anonymously. And anyway, you know, we ended up having to find a way to resolve that situation, which we did. But also, it's just like there was just a general low level of hostility. You know, I I remember in my early meetings, one of my directors at the time, she used to do that thing where I'd be talking and she'd like raise her eyes or she'd do that significant glancing. You know how people do with other people. It was just horrible. Yeah. However, I learned an enormous amount during that time. And I think because I went bouncing in full of arrogance, thinking I've nailed this. And I got slapped down, probably in hindsight, I think the individuals involved will probably not be necessarily particularly proud of their part in it. But And what I learned about that is that I will not give in. You know, I'm just not, I will not be beaten by people just being mean. Where does that come from about you? Because like in preparing for the podcast, I read someone described you, they were, you were backstage, if you like, and you're going on to talk. And they said she was a bundle of nerves. I don't know where I picked this up from, but yeah. a bundle of nerves. But then she hit the stage and boom, equally you know, that whole, you will not be beaten. Where does that sort of determination come from? Like, I have absolutely no idea. Sheer bloody-mindedness, stubbornness. I genuinely couldn't say, Mark. I'd like to be able to say, well, I did this and this and this is what, you know, but it was just, I think it's always like in the moment, really. So do you feel empowered by criticism? Like, so you, when you process criticism, when no. you- No, no. I know it, I feel crushed by it. I feel destroyed by criticism, but I think that it sort of, does it drive me forward? I don't know. I have a passionate belief in the fundamental goodness of human beings. And I think a lot of when human beings are not good, it is down to ignorance. It's about not having the right conversations or not being given exposure to different ways of thinking. And so, and I think because I fundamentally believe that human beings are, you know, of course there are exceptions, you know, there are some very evil people in the world, but fundamentally, I think most of us, given the opportunity, will step up and will do things to help each other. 
And so I think that that just keeps me driving on because I'm able to step out of, I say this is the thing that I have, a skill that I do have or quality I have. I'm able to step out of the challenge and see the bigger picture, see the purpose behind it. And I think when you always can stay connected to what it is you're trying to do, it makes it easier. I'm, I guess the same as being a parent. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've observed this. People who are, as you often see parents dealing with really quite challenging behaviour in their young people, but they're, they're, they're seeing the bigger picture. I'm telling you, you can't have those sweets before bed because I know it's bad for you, even in the moment. So I think being connected to the bigger picture is probably what's yeah. helping to get through some of the tougher times. Yeah. And just in terms of before we wrap up, looking at what excites you most, is there an organisation, is there a person, is there a movement and how hopeful do you feel about a positive future for the sector and what we're doing and how we're doing and dealing with all of the challenges that, are, that we're facing? I am hugely... question that. No, but I've got, I have an answer. I'm hugely, <laughs> hugely inspired and excited by young people. It's like, I just think they have, particularly this generation of young people, I think they're much more alert and aware than definitely we were when I was young and growing up. I think they're much more accepting of difference in people. I think they're much less likely to sort of be judgmental. I mean, maybe that's because they're young, maybe as they get older. But I, I think about the sort of the culture that I was brought in when I was young, and it was it was quite, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, but in a very sort of rules-based way. Whereas I think our young people today are... Mm. Uh, more about what's right and what's wrong in a more ethics and values, morals-based way. I think young people now are like, let human beings be who they are, but that we need to come together and fight injustice. So I feel massively inspired by young people. I mean, not all of them. I know the odd one or two. I'm like, oh, dear God, I don't know what's going to happen to you. But for the vast, overwhelming majority, they're just like, trans people, what's the problem? People of colour, what? Who cares? You know, people of different sexualities, they just... And also they're, they're much more alert and aware about the issues around climate... I suppose the only area I do worry about is I think they're incredibly disengaged from politics, disengaged from politics at the level of like voting and things like that. But actually, they're very politically engaged when you think how many of them go on marches and demonstrate and share stories. So, yeah, young people absolutely inspire me. Yeah, wonderful. And in terms of the sectors, is there the biggest challenge we face? Like we've been through COVID, a pandemic, cost of living crisis, energy issues, like it's coming thick and fast and the sector is, you know, I always think these abundance and scarcity and a lot of scarcities in the charity sector, but what are the biggest challenges we're going to, you know, facing? What are, what are leaders out there facing that you can see? Voice. It's like we are really struggling to be heard in the areas where we need to have impact, where we need to have changes made, where we need to represent those people that we serve. I think, I mean, you know, everybody will say funding crisis, cost of living, blah, blah, blah. All of that's true. But the sector's always struggled with money. That's nothing new. But I think that we're operating in the UK in particular in a relatively worst hostile, at best indifferent attitude towards the work that we do in charities. And I think that our senior politicians in particular have been unable to make the link, or we've been able to convince them to make the link between the work that we do in the general health of the economy generally. If you've got healthier, calmer, more focused people who aren't drowning under whatever their particular issues are, if you've got a better physical environment, if you've got better housing, if you've got better mental health, that that helps the economy overall. And I think that's the biggest challenge we're currently facing is voice. Being able to be heard is particularly difficult at the moment in this particular environment. And you said at the start of this, charities need to have a voice and they need to speak up. And you encourage that, don't you? I, I hear you and, and read what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, oh, 100%. It's like, what's the point otherwise? If all we're doing is like providing a sticking plaster and not doing anything to find about what caused the wound and not trying to fix the, the cause of the wound, 
why why would we bother it's like it just never made any sense to me you know I can't remember who it was was it Desmond Tutu or somebody who talked about some people fall in the river it's not just your job to fish them out your river it's your job to go upstream and find out why they fell in in the first place and fix that so they don't fall in and I think that fundamentally all charities have that duty to almost try and do themselves out of existence which sounds a bit try and of course most never will not because they don't want to but because people will always have issues and there'll always be people who die unexpectedly or whatever so there's always going to be issues they're always going to be needed but I think there are some of our services and and some of us shouldn't be needed and that's we need to go back and see what the hell happened and that's why voice matters so much because mostly as charities we don't have a lot of control over prevention we can do a lot in terms of cure or solace or whatever the succor for want of a better word and we rely on others to be able to do the preventative work and um, that's why I think voice matters so much. So, yeah, if charities don't speak out, you know, what are you actually doing? You're just rocking up, sticking a plaster on, going away again. So, yeah. And for you, here's another 10 years? I have no idea. I've said to you, Mark, you know, right from the beginning, it's been, I'm, I'm at, I've been at DSC accidentally for 22 years, not because I consciously decided I'm staying here and this is my, you know, I just love it. And thus far, my trustees haven't wanted me to go and I felt that we're doing it. Although we do have the conversation. I do say some right when it's time you need to tell me. They're like, not yet. So um, so I have no idea, Mark. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what will happen. I'm always, always open to see what's going on. So I can't say that yeah. I've got a plan. I've never had a plan. Well, I plan to be an actress and an author and those two. Well, that's not true. I wanted to write novels and I wanted to act. But weirdly... Here's an interesting thing. The universe tends to have a way of delivering for you what you dreamt of without necessarily in the way in which you dreamt of it. So I wanted to be an actress. And of course, I never got to do that. But I do a lot of public speaking. So I do a lot of what you might call performing. And I always wanted to write books. And I've written 10. They've been management books as opposed to novels. But nonetheless, actually, the things that I did dream of doing, I have in a really <laughs> roundabout way, you know, performing and writing. Absolutely. Deborah Olcott Tyler, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Pleasure, Mark. Lovely to chat with you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.